Marius. My name is Brian Strom, uh, teaching human rights here. And that makes it a great pleasure to uh, welcome Sasha Dog to the Institute. Uh, it's a uh, pleasure. We've been trying to get you to speak about your research now for quite some time, I think. So thank you for coming on a you know, particularly problematic part of the academic year when the summer is upon us, right? But uh, you know, Sasha's going to speak for as much as he wants, I'm not saying, but try to keep it so we can have a, actually a, a chat and ask questions and, and, and comments. So Sasha's going to present uh, his uh, book that is uh, about to finish, he mm -hmm. promised, in the next month's time. Um, obviously, uh, drawing on his uh, many years of research uh, on site in, in Brazilian prison systems, uh, he just told me he just got back from the Amazon, where he visited a New Age prison, uh, which uh, of course uh, has, uh, you know, seems seems novel. Um, now, the, the, I leave to such kind of introduce his work, of course, but the, you know, prison, Brazilian prisons, of course, is been in the news, including here in this country, for a number of reasons in, in recent times, and you've been talking about this in various fora, I guess, concerning the violence that characterize Brazilian prison system and Brazilian criminal justice system for that matter. Uh, but then there are also other sides to how prisons are, are, uh, are run that does not exclusively based on physical violence and that I guess is part of the type of governance mm -hmm. questions that, that Sasha has been working on for many years. So I'm really looking forward to, to your talk finally. So thank you for, for taking the time. Thank you. So, uh, but yes, I'm going to avoid uh, talking too much about the negative aspects of Brazilian prisons, where there are plenty of negative aspects. And um, I did do a talk um, on recently on the um, on the massacre met in the north of Brazil and the prisons there. And I will refer to that at one point. But my key issue that I made in that talk was what happened in the north of Brazil when there's these horrible massacres was the exception, not the norm. Okay, of what normally happens within the the prison system. So um, the title of this presentation then, which is probably going to be the subtitle of my book, okay, I think we first of all mention the word um, order, okay, then my focus here is that in my experience Brazilian prisons are not as disorderly um, as we often hear that they are, okay, and in terms of co-producing that order, then I'm interested in looking at the way in which Brazilian prisons are run um, as much by prisoners as by prison staff, and based on societal as well as institutional norms. And I'll come back to explain that in more detail as we go along. So the the, the main title of my book um, I'm going to be calling um, Conviviality and Survival. So I'll explain those terms as we go along too. Um, it's based on approximately 30 prison visits, or to different prisons. Um, some of them I've been to a few times. Um, across seven or eight states now. Okay, so I'm gradually going to lots and lots of different ones, come up with the same conclusions. Um, but the book focuses on three prisons. I'll talk to these about these mostly. Let's see if it's going to work. So, 
This is the first one then, which is obviously in the background to this to this picture. Okay, so um, right. So the first one I expect. Have, did, is everyone here attached? Have you? I know my students will know about Brazil because I talk about it all the time. Um, does everyone else know much about Brazil? Okay, so so this prison here, which I went to literally the months before they demolished it in 2005. Okay, had been the site of a, um, a famous um, massacre by the police in 1992, I think it was, okay, where um, there had been a rebellion okay, in Block 9 of the prison, um, which was the, the first time there was a block, more than 2,000 prisoners in there, um, and the police responded um, by killing officially 111 prisoners, okay, who were literally, um, literally murdered. Most of them were thrown away their weapons, were, were in their cells, and that famous film, Karanjuri Prison, which I'll talk about in a bit, in a moment. So, 2005, I had, I was just finishing a PhD on antisocial behaviour orders, and I was thinking, I'm bored of this, I want something new, okay. Um, I knew Brazil well through marriage, um, speak the language reasonably well, and was looking for something new. And my brother-in-law said, ah, oh, let's go see this prison that they are demolishing. Okay, and um, film it at the moment. So anyway, these are a couple of the pictures that I took. The place is absolutely fascinating. That part of rubble there is block eight and nine, the two biggest, most famous blocks which had already been demolished by then. And I'm not sure of my students notice I've got a few of those bits of rubble in my office which I used to keep at my house until my partner said I was bringing negative energy into the house because of how many people had died in that massacre so now in my office which explains the negative energy between me and Andy arresting <laughs> in my office. Okay so I watched the film Karanjuru um, I read the book um, that was written by the famous doctor Andrzej Wradella, who worked in that prison for ten years, on whose memoirs the book was written, and I became fascinated with these kinds of statistics. Okay, so let's go through what I knew about this prison. So, so we knew it was very overcrowded. Okay, and you have to bear in mind that in Brazil. 3,500 spaces, like any country, it's the authorities who decide what maximum capacity is. And in Brazil, this normally means how many bunks there are um, in, in that cell. Okay, so um, it doesn't mean very much. So incredibly overcrowded. But look at that, the visitors that they had each weekend. Um, on Mother's Day, Easter, Christmas, um, there were more visitors in the prison than there were prisoners. Okay, and these are the kind of things that fascinated, fascinated me, how different this prison seemed to be, why they're interested in prison life. Um, thirdly, look at the number of officers they had working at this place. Incredibly small. Okay, so even during the daytime, the average block with 2,000 prisoners only have six officers. And as I, as I learned later, prison officers don't go into the blocks themselves. They work around, they work around the edge. So I also got fascinated in how these places ran without, without guards. 
Okay, and then we saw that during the daytime when prisoners were out of their cells, which they were for most of the daytime. Okay, then yeah, I learned that they were run under prisoner um, rules. Okay, they were the ones who decided um, how things operated within the prison. And then I came across this fascinating term, fascina, okay, which is, means cleaners. Interestingly, I found this in 19th century reports on British prisons. They also used the word cleaners to mean the prisoners who were, like the trusty prisoners who were run, helping to run the prisons. Somehow this word got to Brazil as well. So in, they had one block, block two, okay, which was where they'd have what we call the trusty prisoners, the prisoners who worked for the establishment, okay, who would run all the administrative duties and uh, take things to the individual blocks. Okay, and then um, you had around another um, 700, 800 also use the term fascina, not when Varela was writing his book, but in previous prisoners' biographies they used the word fascina for two types, the one that worked for trusty prisoner, and then what nowadays we would call the gang people. Okay, and they were the ones who were working um, in the blocks, um, usually on the second floor from where they kind of commanded the rest of the block, as well as um, distributed food. Um, and made sure people went back to their cells when the guards came in to lock up and so on and, and so forth. Okay, so I want to mention four brief stories that Varela um, writes about, okay, which kind of illustrate a lot of what I'm talking about now. So first of all is the, the um, massacre, okay, when the police went in to, to block nine. Okay, so what we know about this rebellion, okay, the most important thing was that it was in the first-timers block. It was in the block with inexperienced prisoners. It was in the block where the inmate hierarchy was unable to control and stop a minor dispute, no one's exactly quite sure what it was over, over game of football or something, from escalating. Okay, and this was really important. The second thing that was important was they made the mistake that no prisoners are supposed to make, which is they allowed the guards to leave the block rather than keep them hostage. Hence, when the police went in, and the police were able to go in and do what they did without fear of, um, of prison guards getting injured. But what's interesting as well was what was happening in Block 8 next door, which was the experienced prisoners' um, block. Okay, the second time was the third time as and here Varela talks about, this is in his a book he published quite a few years later, 2012, about prison officers. And here he talks about what happened in that block at the time. So naturally you can imagine the prisoners in that block were concerned about, um, about the, the, the police stopping at block nine and maybe going across the rest of the prison yeah, to massacre people. So there they were with all their knives, getting ready, Know what to do, and the head of discipline in the block, so the officer, um, had to convince them look, take your weapons, take them back to your cells, okay, and um, don't worry, I'll leave the keys with the fascina, 
okay, who will be able to unlock you if the police really are going to head this way. So this idea here of the kind of negotiation between prisoners and guards, which was fascinating. Okay, second brief story. Varela talks about an incident in Block 5. He doesn't say when, but we know it was a few years earlier. And in this incident, um, what happened was the Fashina in this block um, had been extorting families. Okay, they have been making families pay for drug debts, which was fundamentally against the inmate code, fundamentally against them, the agreement with prison guards. But they did another thing. They took um, some, a group of prisoners, so not the Fashino, a group of prisoners managed to take um, some guards hostage, okay, which is common in Brazil. You take people hostage and you ask for transfer. But what they did was they hurt these guards. Again, this is something which is unheard of within the prisoner code to actually harm a prison guard. So what do we have to do? The head of the prison thought, what am I going to do here? I have to change this fascina, but I'm not supposed to, if that makes sense, because he was allowed to have negotiation between um, the prisoners and the prison guards, but what the, you're not supposed to as a guard is actually choose who's the head uh, of, of the fascina. They're supposed to choose themselves. So. In the end, they found a prisoner who um, they did manage to install, but they could trust um, because they knew that a one word from them, he'll be dead for, um, for things he'd done outside of prison. They knew they could trust him to take over and pretend that it had nothing to do with um, he hadn't been chosen by the prison guard. But what was fascinating was then that the guards went cell by cell for the old fashioned, literally 200 of them opened each one, allowed a new hierarchy to go in, beat them up, and then the prison guards removed them to another block to the punishment cell. So again, it's this idea of, I'm thinking here about co-producing order between them. Okay, um, third, um, have you seen the film Karanjuru? Yeah. Okay, so the opening scene of Karanjuru is absolutely fascinating because it shows... Um, I don't think they say which block it is, but they start with this scene of the head fascina. I'm going to use this word fascina, okay? So the head fascina was there outside two cells where there'd been an argument between prisoners. And what had happened was um, one, one, pri one prisoner had killed the other prisoner's father. Okay, and so naturally this one who had found out wanted to take revenge against him. But the point is, this was fundamentally against any inmate rule, which is that issues that happen outside stay outside. That's the first thing he, first mistake he made. You're not allowed to bring your issues inside prison. The second thing was he was not allowed to take revenge without permission. Okay, from the, in, from the block hierarchy. So this is what's fascinating about this. You have this scene where this is where the doctor, Varela, comes to the prison for the first time and this is what he meets. He sees this and it's the idea that in the end you have the head of the Fraschina, the prison director, and this doctor, who is famous doctor, is about to go and work there, um, um, have this sort of uh, talk together about the, the rules of the prison that have been broken. 
Okay, and then the last one, which is alluded to in Varela's book, but picked up in detail in a um, television series they were filming just before, uh, at the time when I visited the prison, and the first, the first, um, uh, it's called Karangiru Other Stories. Um, I think there are subtitles, but I'll check if you want to watch it. So they, so they introduced this idea of what they called a debate. They use this English word debate, and the word debate is for when what prisoners do when somebody has broken has broken um, an inmate code code. Okay, so it shows here again the same person in the film, the head fascina, running this debate. And what had happened was um, one prisoner had gone to had gone to the prison. His wife had started an affair with a man who then went. And so the question was yeah, whether this person had now, he had had an affair with an existing prisoner's partner, which was, again, so it's a problem outside that affected inside of the prison. So the issue here was whether um, the person who had been offended was required to kill the offender. In the end, fortunately, they decided, they decided not, because the woman had very good reasons for... Um, having this affair because her husband had been a drug addict, hadn't been a proper criminal, he'd killed somebody uh, when he was high on drugs, and that was also something that's against the inmate code. Okay, I'm going to look at the clock and I will make sure I finish for so we have half an hour of discussion. Right, um, okay, and this quote here really, really fascinated me. I'm starting my book with this quote from Varela. said, How so few could control such a mass of criminals was for me the deepest mystery. This sums up what my research has been about as well. And I also want to bring in David Scarbeck here. Has anyone read work of David? You will have read David Scarbeck's work. So David Scarbeck, um, our work is really quite similar in many ways. He focuses on or did focus originally on California, okay, on prison gangs in California, and found a similar phenomenon, uh, which I'll talk about later, which is you know, the stronger the gang presence, the lower the levels of violence um, in, in a prison. And as he writes from a um, political economic point of view, governance institutions are necessary for people to live orderly, prosperous lives. The point is that... For the average prisoner, they want to keep their heads down and be able to get on with their lives, like anybody else would. And this is what's fundamentally important, that prison order is in everyone's interests, apart from a few predatory people, but most people do not fall within that category. The difference between my and Scarbeck's work, I would guess, is Scarbeck was looking at um, illicit economies in particular, um, so how can you be sure about you know, drug deals, now that you're going to get your money paid without violence? Okay, gangs organise this for you. In Brazil it goes much further than that. It could be simple things like who, who sleeps on the bunk, or as they say in Brazilian prisons, who sleeps on the beach, um, on the floor. Yeah, these are issues uh, which are much more fundamental yeah, because of the atrocious conditions that they're, that they're living in.
Okay, so that's what inspired me. Um, if I have time later, I'll talk about this in a tiny bit more detail, but I suspect not, so I'm going to talk about it for a few minutes now. Um, my second um, main prison, which I focus on in my book, called the prison, was a police station. Okay, um, which in Brazil, um, if you go back 20 years, or even 10 years, more than 50,000 people were held in the back of police stations waiting for spaces to be available in the remand prison system because prison authorities want to keep numbers down. The official figures on overcrowding are based on those prisons. And so people were literally kept um, illegally okay, um, in the back of police stations. So this was one in Rio, um, which I went to in 2010. Fortunately, the um, lock-up system of Rio um, closed down completely in 2012. Um, in Sao Paulo, it closed down a few years before that. So gradually, these places are being, are being replaced. Um, this was um, originally um, um, police horse stables that were converted into literally cages for prisoners. So, I won't talk about it in detail, but they, the conditions were horrific in there. So I went. So I did a study there for three weeks. Um, so I was there from about nine in the morning to about six in the afternoon for twenty or twenty-one days, continuously, literally hanging out in this incredibly packed um, situation. Um, but I want to again. Give you a few illustrations, which um, from this from this study, and um, the first one's going to be from the first time I went there. Okay, because I went there first in March two thousand and ten. Okay, when I was looking for somewhere to do a study. Okay, so this is what I found when I first went in there. So I went into the administ administration office. Okay, and while I was there, before I could talk to the um, the governor. Um, of the prison, I had to wait for these prisoners who had just arrived to be registered and transferred. Two things struck me. Firstly, was that the gang leader, the Red Command leader, was overseeing their registration. Okay, it was in the office, you had to sort of watch that they were being dealt with. And then the second thing I kind of realised, I realised much more later, was that the people then put the handcuffs on them and took them to the cells were prisoners. And this is, you can imagine, I immediately thought, this is the kind of study I need to be doing. So then we had to go over to the Red Command wing because I needed to ask for permission to do my research. Um, so I needed to obviously get the permission of... I had to, In Brazil, they have sort of gang wings and what they call security wings. And in Rio de Janeiro, um, a lot of people are on the security wings. It's basically anyone who doesn't want to be in a gang um, or can, is not accepted into a gang. So basically anybody over about 25 years old who says, I'm fed up with gangs, okay, sex offenders and so on and, and so forth. And as I realised later, the ones who had put the handcuffs on, and also the ones who went to the Red Command wing who unlocked the gates to let me onto the wing were trusty prisoners from the, um, from the um, security wing. Okay, so 
And then imagine this, we went on to, um, we went on to the wing. Imagine it's 50 degrees centigrade in there. They're incredibly hot. I went on there with the police officer, a famous police officer called Orlando Zacconi, who was running these lockups at the time. He's an abolitionist. He managed to abolish them. He's a critical criminologist. So I went in there with him and a friend of mine who was a senior retired judge. Okay, so um, obviously thinking of the three of us went squeezing through um, onto this wing to meet the same Red Command leader who I'd seen in the office previously. First thing that was fascinating, we went in, the call came out, there's a woman coming in. Suddenly, in a huge panic, everybody put on white t-shirts. Well, not only white t-shirts, but incredibly clean and ironed white t-shirts. As I found out later, they used two litre Coca-Cola bottles with hot water in the stoves they had in these cages. Yeah, they used these for ironing. And then, as we squeezed through, next thing that really struck me was, yep, so I spoke to the um, gang leader and his entourage. Um, I had my um, participant information sheet translated, so I went through my participant information sheet with them, which, of course, they didn't really care about. Um, and then, but they said, yeah, 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 don't worry, you can come and study our organisation and structure. Okay? And then, finally, as we were leaving, the head of the CB shook hands with Zakorni, this big police officer, um, who, when we came out, said, do you know, I think I'm the only police officer the Red Command shake hands with. But again, it was just so interesting how this place was being, being run. Okay, second anecdote, um, which I think really explains how these places work. So this is during my research. So the second one is, you know, I spend a lot of time in this administration office, because what I would do is I would leave my notebook in there, because I didn't want to be kind of writing notes, talking to people and writing, and writing notes. Um, so I used to sort of hang out, um, not on the Red Command wing, I did on the um, secure security wing, I didn't hang out on that, I just did interviews with Red Command, and then I would go and scribble my notes um, in the office. So I saw lots of times when people would, would arrive, and one thing that struck you straight away was these, literally, the boys that they brought in, I'm going to call them boys, Brazilians look young, um, and most of them were only about 18 or 19 or 20 years old, but they looked about 15 years old, and it was always the same thing, they'd come in looking scared, bewildered, and the first question was always, what gang are you in? More often than not, they said, I don't know. The second question was, which part of the city are you from? Okay, and then it was, um, if it was as far as city, okay, that's Red Command, you can stay. And they send you to Red Command. Of course, you've got the others who say, I'm interested in gangs, and they went to the security wing. And if you said, I'm from another part of the city, they'll say, right, that means you're in a different gang, so you have to go to the, the holding cell, and you'll be transferred later. So the way it was institutionalised. And as I found out later, Zaconi at this prison um, had taught the security wing how to organise themselves along the lines of the Red Command wing. So that's why this sort of was an institutionalised way of dealing with... You know, the fact is this prison at night time had one officer on duty. Which should be to my third anecdote. Um, when when I was once trying to say to, I was really trying to get to grips with the idea that there's one person 
there at night time. And um, the governor there, yeah, I said to him, um, yeah, he said to me, look, he said, yeah, if it's not me, I sleep with my phone actually on next to my pillow. And I said to him, well, um, well, of course, if there's a rebellion, <laughs> you're going to have to know about it. He said, no, 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 not that. There's not going to be a rebellion. He said, well, he said, it's 50 degrees centigrade in there. We don't have any medical staff. He said, if someone needs to go to hospital, what's it going to look like in a newspaper if they find out that there were no prison guards there? And then, as I found out later, the trustee prisoners were armed at night time and used to patrol this prison. And they were headed by former police officers who were now prisoners. So it, was, it, was, it, it could operate without, without the police. Last anecdote. Okay, last anecdote from here is... Um, yeah, is what prisoners there thought of me, because what became interesting was a lot of prisoners there assumed I was a prisoner, that I was a trusty prisoner. And we had this bizarre situation, because I got drawn into things that were going on there, like escorting families to and from the You end up getting involved in all these kind of things. The family people assumed I was a prisoner. Um, when I did interviews with prisoners, um, some of them assumed I was a prisoner. And then one day, I remember this judge who, was, who used to go there and do pro bono work um, as a lawyer um, said to me one day, I've met him so many times, he turned around to me and said, how did you end up here? And that's when I finally dawned on me that even he, even he assumed that, that, I was, that I was a prisoner. Okay. Third then, um, our... My second major study, okay, was in, if, if the police station is like the worst of the worst, okay, my next study was deliberately the best of the best. Okay, so the, um, in Brazil there are possibly hundreds, certainly many, many dozen prisons which are run by non-government organisations, normally on faith um, lines, Nothing in Brazil works without religion, um, I'm, I'm always told. Um, and if I have time, I'll talk about some other state, including the New Age prison I went to in the, the Amazon. But this is going to be my main focus, because these prisons, um, of which are mostly in the state of Minas there are around about 40 now, all small community prisons, probably an average of um, less than 100 prisoners, Okay, and what was fascinating about this, these places was they had institutionalised this idea of prisoners being run by prisoners. Okay, so um, in fact, they had the only people who were paid to work at this prisoner prison were the occasional guard who had to be a former prisoner of that prison to eventually become a guard. So this is my introduction to this place. So um, one anecdote, I'll just give two anecdotes here. So when I arrived there, um, I was picked up from the station by um, this boy who was working in the prison and this person who turned out to be one of the heads of the organisation that oversees all these prisons. Um, this is not really relevant, but it was just interesting man was um, in a wheelchair, was severely disabled, 
But the point is, what I found out later was that he was a former prisoner in the prison, then became the prison governor, uh, and now was involved in writing the rules for overseeing the whole prison system. Okay. Um, so, second anecdote I'm bringing here. Um, one day, when I was sitting on the closed wing of this prison, um, having an interesting conversation with prisoners there who just couldn't understand how I told them I didn't have any fixed religion, because they were saying to me, but we don't understand, you're a good person. Um, and while I was having this conversation with the four of them in this cell, one of them decided to make me a, um, they call it a vitamin, a vitamin drink, got out this knife about this long, cut the fruit. Um, I was in this cell with them, and I started thinking to myself, between me and the front gate, I have these four, I have the exit to the closed wing, which has prisoners working on it, and then I have the front gate, which has a former prisoner working on it. Um, if, I, if I let my ethics committee know this, I was a bit worried about the podcast, but it's going to come out at some point. Yeah, would they be interested? The fact is, I slept in this prison for three weeks while I was doing this research, not in a cell, but in the administrative lock. But because cells weren't unlocked in the semi-open part of prison where I was, yeah, it was literally a case of going to bed and the prison would come and wake me up in the morning. But they used to, they used to enjoy shouting in my ear at half six every morning. Um, so, okay. And then the third anecdote from this, okay, I'm going to describe one time, when I was in this prison, I... The only time I left over these three weeks, and it was on, I think it was four occasions, but I went on day visits to other prisons. Okay, so I was the yeah, I arranged to go and visit other prisons. So one day I was coming back, and as I walked through the gate, um, where, they, um, where they had this sort of mechanical unit, I realised that two prisoners had, were you know, about to have a fight. They picked up metal rods and were being separated by other prisoners. So there'd been this disturbance. So, what happened immediately was the prisoner council, the inmate council, immediately got together to decide what are we going to do. So have what in the common prison system they would call a debate. For them, I can't remember what they called it, but it was certainly... Yeah, so they got together and called witnesses. Okay, interestingly, all of which denied that what all of us had seen, which was metal rods were being picked up. They all denied that. Um, the prison governor came along and said they should both be um, one of one of them is yet yeah, they should both be returned to the closed unit. That's what he thought the punishment should be. The prisoners uh, decided to ignore what he said and send one of them back to the closed wing. Obviously, someone they didn't like very much. They said he was a known troublemaker. The other one, who was actually part of their group, they decided just to give him five days um, in his cell in the evening. And then what was fascinating was that the prison governor took up their recommendations because actually he was expected normally to take up the recommendations of this group of what to do about, about discipline. And as people said to me afterwards, when they were, they were quite angry that he had said he had told them what he thought they should do because he was the only prison governor at that prison in the 20 years they'd been operating who hadn't been a former prisoner. 
he was the first. And they didn't see him as having this authority. Okay, that kind of says, I mean, the rest of this I can zoom through. So I'm going to do so because I've actually got a lot of slides, but I'm going to zoom. I'm going to zoom through them. Um, I'm going to focus on these issues here, but go through quickly because, you know, unpacking all these experiences I've had, conceptualising them. You know, I'm writing my book under five main, six or six main areas. What I sort of, for me, what I understand is the key features of Brazilian prisons, because first of all. Obviously, what remember what I'm talking about here is use this title conviviality and survival. Now we're talking about horrific conditions that how people usually not the attack prisons, but how people usually manage to survive in these conditions. So naturally, I had to write a chapter you know, on um, you know looking at what's bad about Brazilian prisons. So you know, mass incarceration, the fact they are so many people being sent to prison the fact they're so overcrowded and under-resourced, the fact they have very, very few guards. Okay, so that's conditions. The second aspect which I'm particularly interested in, my research is on, okay, is prison life. Okay, so I'm interested in what's happening in these spaces, how people get by, yeah, so, so to speak. Okay, and that links into um, five and six, which are that they get by with the participation of prisoners. Also, what we should have here is the participation of the community. Okay, so I will make reference to that as we go along too. Um, okay, so in, in terms of the broader, sort of broad, broader um, conceptual framework, the epistemological frameworks that I bring into this research. The first one is, you know, this is comparative research. Okay, so you could say, I won't go through these, I don't think I need to, but um, just thinking the way here, for my students to know this, rather than global trends, maybe a better word is global averages. Okay, so we, so obviously we, I'm looking to some extent how Brazilian prisons are similar to other places and how they differ. Okay, which is our interpretivist point of view. I probably fit somewhere between the two because actually more and more I find myself developing a regional analysis because a lot of what I've got to say, I believe, though I haven't been there yet, applies to quite generally to Latin America as a whole and even to the global south more, more generally. So I can even get to a point where I start to think maybe this positivism is northern positivism uh, and I'll end up sort of writing a, a, southern, a southern positivism. So I won't go through these. Um, again, I don't have time, but I can share these slides afterwards. Um, this is, you know, ultimately you could say I'm coming from an interpretivist point of view. I'm interested in studying places in their own right. Okay, for me, um, most of what I read about Brazilian prisons are written by Brazilians who don't go to Brazilian prisons. Does that make sense? Now, there are a few, Karina um, Bianchi, who I'm working with now, who is completely the opposite. My knowledge is tiny compared to hers, but there's not very many 
There's not very many of them. So this is a kind of quote um, which I actually got from Vatant's work, um, okay, where basically saying that Brazil is odd. It's different to the West. And the more you go there, the more time you spend there, the more time you come across things you just think, only in Brazil. Yeah, or this wouldn't happen elsewhere. And this is fundamentally important. Uh, even bizarre thing. My family, my wife's family in Brazil, one of the first things I noticed when I went in there, and it's funny, my brother said the same thing when he visited ten years later, was, why have they got a Buddha with a Christian cross around his neck? So it makes sense. It seems to be only in Brazil. In the end, it was because my mother-in-law was originally from Japan. My father-in-law was originally Catholic, but now they were actually both spiritualist. It's all... Yeah, this kind of... Mi mi and you have to understand this to understand how these places operate. So, I'm not going to go through this either. In 2000, last year, with um, the judge I was talking about, the one who I went to this uh, first prison with, um, Maria Lucia Karam, we wrote a chapter in the Hamburg on Prisons, second edition, on Latin American prisons, admittedly, very largely Brazil, than Latin America. And we said, if we're going to understand um, what goes on, then there's all kinds of things we would need to, um, we would need to focus on you know, the legacies of colonisation, and in particular in Brazil, Portuguese colonisation, um, or, um, or the Iberian colonisation. There's so much in Brazilian writing which focuses on what's specific you know, issues to do with like, the Inquisition, stuff which I don't have time to talk about today. You need to study these things to understand how these places, these places operate. Um, I don't have time to go through any of these really. I'll touch upon one or two as we go along, but I will, since I've written this and I've been writing my book, these are three terms that really, really stick with me. Okay, one is the pluralist nature of Brazil, how everywhere is different. Does that make sense? And you'll see that in Brazilian in prisons now. It doesn't matter if it's a gang prison. One gang prison, the same gang, operates totally differently to another one. And this is fundamentally important. You can find similarities, but there's differences there too. Okay, informality, which obviously links into this. In Brazil, things get done they use this word, jeito, jeitinho, sort of finding a way yeah, of getting things done. Things are informal. They have an appearance of being bureaucratic, but it's not really. Yeah, it's kind of who you know. Sometimes you could call this corruption, but before we get to the level of corruption, there's a whole other level of kind of doing each other favours and what have you, which for me really explains how people manage to ne negotiate these ways of survival. And then that term, conviviality, which for me is fundamental as well, especially among the poor in Brazil. You will find, you know, the stuff I read about people working in the favelas, like I'm finding in the prison, you always come across these terms of how people without governance have to find ways to, to work together. So we call it yeah, co-living, okay, which is fundamental too. But I'm going to give more details as I go along. Okay. Um, and then, my central concern, which these, um, these terms, you know, pluralism, formality, and conviviality, sort of feed into, my main focus on 
prison that I as well. Fundamentally, what I'm, if I'm going to add anything to literature theoretically, it's looking at nuances um, in the use of the sociology of, as I put there, northern prison and life literature. So Foucault, Goffman, and Sykes, even I may even quite call Foucault a sociologist, because the reality is, is that Foucault was not writing about Latin America, even though they like to say he went to Brazil twice. Um, he wasn't writing with Brazil in mind, nor was Goffman, yeah, and nor was Sykes. And one thing I struggle a lot with with people in Brazil is how much they use Foucault, Goffman, and Sykes, while actually here in England, we do a little bit, but we, but we would, does that make sense? We sort of develop nuances in these theories here. Sometimes I find in Brazil they too automatically use these, use these terms. But I, 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 I normally have time to go over, go over those terms. We'll do it as we go along. And then finally, sorry not finally, secondly, this issue of convict criminology. So something which myself and a colleague brought over from America to Britain a few years ago. How this fits into my research is not only the fact that um, I'm a prison ethnographer, and I think that is fundamental, but the fact that I privilege the knowledge uh, of my participants, if that makes sense. We had that conversation before about can you trust what people say about uh, and actually in Brazil prisoners do have a kind of tradition of lying to try to get away with things. So this is why I've had to go to 30 prisons, you have to ask so many people <laughs> to sort of um, clear your doubts. So I'm interested in their standpoints. I'm also interested in the standpoints of prison guards. Uh, I'm also interested in the standpoints of, I read a lot of biographies uh, of former prison workers and former prisoners and I think this is fundamental. And then that last issue which um, I could be heavily criticised for which is this issue of the, the professional ex the professional ex-offender because yes in convict criminology we do support, we're not just bringing prisoners' voices into criminology but we also support former prisoners um, working you know, in um, activism Okay, and then ultimately you could say, how about working in prisons? Actually being the people who are being included in running, in running prisons, which I, is controversial, but it's something which I'm working, working towards. And then finally, um, I'm an abolitionist. Most people assume I'm not. I get criticised all the time for romanticising Brazilian prisons. Uh, I know it sounds like I am sometimes. Um, I think often that's because I get fed up with people doing the opposite. Does that make sense? With assuming that the people who are in Brazilian prisons um, are highly dangerous people and so on and so forth. So I guess I'm going to try to find a middle path between those. But ultimately, yes, I would like to um, scrap prison for most people. Okay, but like, I could have used the term neo-abolitionism there. I'm interested in still what we would do with a horrible term, the dangerous few. Okay, so I work at Grendon Prison in the United Kingdom. I do a lot of work there. 
I'm interested in the concept of the democratic therapeutic community, which is why I went to the APAC prisons and why I went to the New Age prison in the Amazon recently. So I'm interested in you know, a democratic therapeutic community focuses on breaking down the barriers between prisoners, breaking down the barriers between prisoners and guards, and focusing on breaking down the barriers between prisons and communities. Again, this is what I'm interested in my work too, looking at that part, the role of the prisoner within prison. Right, so I'm going to be, they're slightly over six, but I'm going to make sure I don't go too much over, because I won't show all of these slides. Let's just go quickly over these um, defining features then. All right, so stuff you already know. Um, in the background, so... Yeah, this is stuff from my Latin American prison. We know that Latin America, um, as a, a phrase I've tried to um, coin with my colleague Chris Garces from Cornell University, we wrote a paper recently where we said Latin America is becoming the new mass carceral zone. You know, punishment in North America, use of prison has barely shifted in 20 years now. Okay, but in Latin America, it's increased phenomenally. And we look at uh, places like um, yeah, Colombia, yeah, enormous, yeah, in the 20-year period, enormous rise um, in, number of, in numbers of prisoners. Um, and Costa Rica, even a small country like this. And if we look at Brazil, we can see an incredible situation. It wasn't that long ago in Brazil where they had um, a far lower proportion of its general population in prisons than we had here. Okay, this is a new phenomenon in Brazil, and now these are the official figures. They're going to be um, higher than that. Yeah, we're possibly talking about 700,000 people in prison and rising. Okay, so that graph there, 2026, God knows where, um, God knows where it's going to be. Um, I'm not going to talk about the reasons for that. We don't have we don't have time. Um, secondly, then, issues to do with overcrowding. So again, we know that, that well, the overcrowding and material deprivation, um, obviously it all starts with overcrowding. Um, I'm quite thick-skinned. I can walk into prisons and it's amazing how I can go in. I do see the suffering, but I manage to be there, if that makes sense. And you've seen an awful lot of suffering in many of these prisons that I've been in. So that's the official, so officially it's only, I say only, about yeah, le less than um, twice capacity. But as I said, the reality is much, much worse than that. And in the um, remaining police stations, like this one, um, actually when I do share um, the slides, I will take this one off. Um, I don't normally show pictures, I didn't take this one, um, but somebody I was with took this um, picture, a judge, in um, the lockups of Paraná, okay, where one of the states that still has a lot of people, about 10,000, stuck in its police station system. And these, these kind of conditions are, as you can imagine, no natural light, 24 hours a day in that cell. Um, and of course, yeah, all kinds of 
illnesses which are being untreated and so on and so forth. So we know they are appalling places. We know that um, we know that the average Brazilian prison will have a doctor turn up on a Friday, and that's it. Okay, and some of these places can be like more than two thousand people when there's a doctor who just comes on a Friday. I've been in a remand prison in Brazil a couple of times where, yes, they have a doctor on a Friday, but it's never been provided by the state. It's always had to be a voluntary doctor. Okay, so there's uh, everything you've read about conditions in these prisons is absolutely, absolutely true. This is in the background of my research. This is the most depressing. This one did affect me. You must say I'm sick skin in Goiás. Okay, this was in this prison complex in Goiás had its didn't have a police station, but it kind of did because they had the remand prison, but they had the um, like the holding cell, what they call a triage, where, where people arrive. Except this was like a prison itself with about 500 people in it. Okay, and this is the most shocking thing: walking through just right next to the entrance. Yeah, so that um, isolation cell to there, and hearing this female voice, squeaky voice, saying hello, and then me looking up and seeing there's those little holes, oh, can't that tonight. there's little gaps, very small gaps there, and seeing these faces there. They happened to be, I'm assuming they were all white, the point is they were very, very pale. Yeah, these faces, and these were girls who had probably um, killed their own children yeah, and for that reason you know, could not. The point is they could not be kept with other um, women prisoners because they would be killed. And it's one of these sort of shocking things that happens in... So what happens to those kind of people yeah, who have committed a type of crime that is full stop? not accepted and uh, within women's prisons it tends to be a much smaller number and they tend to be stuck in these horrible awful places 24 hours a day okay um central prison famous prison in um one, one of brazil's official worst prisons there's two of them there's a um, corrado complex in the north of brazil and this central prison in the south, the south of Brazil. So again, one of the many places that I've been to. Um, again, these aren't my pictures. Um, I actually went into one of these when it was empty like that. And this kind of place is so overcrowded that you can't see that picture properly. That people don't have cell doors anymore. Does that make sense? People were literally chucked in onto the wing um, and then the cells doors. They, they can't. If they try to get people in cells, there isn't room for them. So this is a picture of people sleeping across the corridor. So these are um, very, very overcrowded places. Okay, and then lastly in terms of prison conditions is um, staff shortage. So again, I've probably given quite a clear idea of that so far. Um, now, I keep on wondering if I need to change this one on duty for 100 plus prisoners because actually it's probably on average two to 300. And the fact is these days that prison guards 
I've, I'm working with a prison guard in Rio. He's actually just finished an undergraduate degree um, and wrote his dissertation on his experience yeah, of, in a Bangu, the Bangu prison complex, so one of the sort of huge prison complex of 27,000 prisoners in Rio, in one of the main Red Command gang prisons. And again, it's just kind of fascinating when he talks about his negotiations. An important thing for now is, yeah, there's, um, there's only their team that's on duty, there's only six of them, and that's if nobody's ill. Um, and um, yeah, they're dealing with over a thousand prisoners. Okay, and this is really fundamental to realise that. Okay, so that leads on to the part which isn't my research, which is the conditions. Okay, so my starting point then between on prison conditions is that these places are abandoned. Okay, they're operating without state support. Okay, and um, so we know there are yeah, mass incarceration, overcrowding, and staff shortage. And we have that classic quote by Loic Bracon, who described them as concentration camps for the dispossessed. Um, we could call them camps of internment, right, where people are literally are literally kept. And that other quote there from Bracon, who says, "Well, actually, Brazil has always kind of been like this. Now we're starting." in the north to become a bit more like, like Brazil as we're moving beyond the idea of having a welfare state and rehabilitation and so on and so forth. Okay, I'm going to have to leave this. This is to do with violence. Maybe have time in a moment. Right, fourth one then, okay, is the issue of... Yeah, this is where I switch into what my research is about, which is how people survive in these spaces. Okay, so... My issue here on this slide is what makes prisoner participation possible? What makes it possible for the guards to cooperate with prisoners and for prisoners to cooperate together? Okay, so start with a couple of things. First of all, yes, we know that there are huge numbers of people chucked in cells, chucked in dormitories. The point is, is that you cannot do your own time in Brazil. Uh, you have to do your time with others. We know that in a British prison, um, most people who often survive best are the ones who keep to themselves. Okay? In Brazil, the ones who survive best are the ones who become part of the collective, um, as, they, as they call it. Okay, so most prisoners... Um, the, the ordinary prisoner who's accepted into the gang and so on and so forth, um, compared to the average in this country, spends more time within the block as opposed to stuck in their prison cell. And this is important as well. People spend a lot of time kind of hanging out um, within that, that space. And um, not many prisons these days will have lock up before four or five in the evening. Um, some do, yeah, but most will be something like seven or eight in the morning to four or five in the afternoon is prison's just kind of there. And then they'll lock them in the cells later, apart from some prisons, you know they don't. Okay. Um, visiting days. There's a picture there of 
Karangaroo prison on a visiting day. Look how many. Um, so literally, we know Brazil on Saturday and Sunday, usually, the gates kind of open. If you go to a Brazilian prison on Saturday or Sunday, uh, very early in the day, you'll see lines of people with their shoe bags. Okay, so people, you have families supply prisoners with virtually everything. All prisons, pri prison authorities do in Brazil generally these days is give this horrible food three times a day. Believe me, I've eaten it. Uh, it's absolutely and utterly disgusting. Amazingly, it costs nearly £10 for each one. This is corruption in Brazil. You know, they pay nearly £10 for each uh, one of these awful, shocking meals. I, no, I tried one for the first time uh, a few weeks ago. Even though I'm vegetarian, they've kind of flicked out the meat. I'm sure I had a, I don't know, I'm sure I had the juice from it. But I had to, so I was sitting down with prisoners. I wasn't going to eat, uh, say I couldn't eat their food. So, but this is shows just so much how prisons, prison authorities rely on prisoners to self-regulate, but they also rely on their families. Um, and this is really important too. And then, the last point I've got here is, it's actually a case in Brazil, quite bizarrely, that they have these terrible conditions, but when it comes to things like work and education, they're probably on a similar level, if not higher level than us, in terms of how many prisoners actually have jobs. Now, of course, we know that a lot of them, because they're working um, in trustee positions, um, um, cooking, cleaning, and so on and so forth, sometimes working with keys. Okay, um, but also, states like San Paulo, for example, which has um, nearly 50% of its prisoners working full-time. Um, okay, then they also do have a lot of workshops, and you might call this exploitation, companies go in. Uh, to, um, to give prisoners full time. But all it means that when you go into some of these prisons, there's stuff going on absolutely everywhere. Uh, they're really busy places with a lot of negotiation going on. Okay, I'm going to flick forward because I've got two more points to, to finish off with. So, inmate governance. Okay, is my next one. So I've talked about what allows prisoners to... Um, to work together, and um, to work together with prison officers. Well, I did miss from that last slide was these terms which you always come across among prisoners, which are terms like collective, being part of the collective, the cell collective or the wing collective, or even the prison collective. They use these, these terms. Rules of conviviality. So the rules they use which govern things like in-cell behaviour, simple things like don't touch something that isn't yours, um, clean up after yourself, having rotors yeah, within the cells of who has to clean on each day, um, rules, who has to sleep in the toilet, who sleeps on the beach, and who sleeps. Um, um, yeah, yeah, they have these, you know, they have, they have these rules. And then rules to do with dealings with other prisoners generally, as we said, things like leave your problems to the outside, no violence without permission, and then dealings with other guards, with guards which always don't obstruct prison guards. It's always the case which is because prisoners know that the moment you harm a guard um, is the moment when your food doesn't arrive, your family get humiliated and so on and so forth. So they have these rules um, 
which for me come from outside of prison. They come from the favelas where people have similar rules. And when they arrive in prison, they already know how you're supposed to govern without, without um, also official authority. Okay then, so the trustee for this is interesting, this statistic. Um, again, the statistics in Brazil are always dubious because officially it's only uh, the trustee, the statistics from only a few years ago showed about 10% of prisoners officially working as trustee prisoners. Now it shows a lot less. I don't know what this means. Part of it may well be that nearly half of the country's prison population are in the state of Sao Paulo um, and they are so well organised within the gang set up um, that perhaps that means they have less trusty prisoners. I have to come back to that. But we have the trusty prisoners, remember, then we also have the inmate leaders who is uh, dealing with the incel roaches, organising, cleaning, meal teams who take the meals to the cells, who take them back, and so on and so forth. So this quote by Varela sums up a lot of what I have said. Okay, so he called the fascina, I mean this is a term we can use for both. Yeah, the fascina, he, he said, is the spine of the prison. Without understanding its structure, it's not possible to comprehend everyday life. From ordinary moments to the most serious ones, its function is to distribute cell by cell the three daily meals and do the general cleaning. Dialogue between the administration is fundamental for maintaining order, for keeping violence in check. Without the agreement of the pavilion leader, nothing can be done. So remember, he was writing in 1999, okay, with prison gangs, which is going to be my last point. A lot of this has been institutionalised. Okay, so let's finish with this then. Prison gangs. Okay, so this is obviously in Portuguese. Um, it was a map that came out when they had these, uh, this crisis in the north of Brazil around these prisons here, okay, which was talking about how the uh, in some powerful state, if I go straight on to the next slide, I'm going to miss out a lot of this. Okay, so we're going to talk, I'm going to start off by talking here about the um, first command of the capital. Okay, so the first command of the capital is the gang which grew out of the Karangiru massacre. Okay, so we start off with this horrible picture here of people who were killed by, by the police. Okay, so 19, sorry, 2001, sorry, 1992, okay, we had this massacre in the Karangiru prison. So the first command of the capital, um, when they set themselves up around about a year later, within their constitution that they wrote, they made reference to, we'll never allow a massacre like this to happen again. And a very political message, okay, which I think is important uh, from the tradition that comes from um, crime generally, generally in Brazil. Now, 2001, we had the first time the first command of the capital announced itself um, to, the, to the world. Okay, prior to that, the government was ignoring the fact that this gang had started to, to build up. And they simultaneously had a rebellion in 29 prisons. 
Now, this rebellion wasn't against the state. It was a cover for reorganising power within these prisons. So then we had these horrible pictures like this one come out, which are very similar to the pictures that came out recently in the north of Brazil. It's, um, if you know the work of Michel Foucault, where he talks about sort of the execution, yeah, how um, you know, when, when the king, when kings in the past were saying, I have the right to govern this territory, okay, they would mark it with these horrific executions and we can see a similar kind of thing happening in the prison systems in Brazil. So we have these spates of violence where lots of people die horrifically, okay? And then, in theory, the gang that's orchestrated these has then um, claimed that territory for itself. And then finally, in 2006, we had this um, huge rebellion, okay, um, across half of the prison system, this one was against the state. Okay, this was the gang saying to the state, we now have command of the prison system. Um, the state was um, starting to move prisoners, heads of the gang into um, high security units and they sort of sent out a message saying, no, we are now in control. And what's interesting is we haven't had a rebellion since 2006. Okay, something happened on that time when things became settled. And we have a weird situation now in Sao Paulo where officially last year 14 people were murdered in the prisons, which is a fraction of what it used to be. Okay? Um, now there are other people who officially died as a result of suicide and there's suspicion that some of these deaths are cover-ups, but still it's incredible how since 2006 we've had this situation where, where um, some parallel prisons are um, generally places which are, quite, are relatively safe and calm places to be in so long as you are an ordinary prisoner who knows how to keep their head down and, and follow the rules that have been set within this prison. Okay, I'm just going to do, I'm not going to talk about the laws and massacres. So I'm just going to finish then. I'm not going to have time to go into my other study. I'm going to finish with two examples here. Two prisons that I've been to. Recently, well, that's a prison, that's a model. Okay, interestingly made by prisoners, of course. Okay, so this is a remand prison in the state of Sao Paulo. Um, I now know the um, the deputy governor of this prison really well, okay, and uh, so I'm not going to say which prison uh, because he's telling me the kind of things which are confirming what I've been studying and uh, I could obviously get him into trouble. But this is a model because in some powerful states, remember we have nearly a quarter of a million prisoners of which probably nearly as many as 100,000 are on remand. So 100,000 remand prisoners in one state, all in units that look like this, because they've been built, they will have a very, very similar design. So this is a model of this prison. This here is showing the different wings. Um, this is where the guards, the few guards stay here. And what's interesting about this prison is, let's say what, it's a first command of the capital prison. Okay, so we have, nearly 2,500 prisoners, 
three gang members is one thing that's really important. There's only actually three gang members in here because as the first command of the capital has progressed, it hasn't needed to have gang members, if that makes sense. People always talk about just, they talk about following the ethics of the first commander of the capital. Their rules now are long established. There's only actually three gang members, but in each of these units, the first cell will be the fascina cell, okay, which are the ones who, uh, they're the only people who are allowed to speak to the prison guards. That's how it works. They're just sort of representatives. Okay? Um, but one of the things that's most fascinating about this is, um, firstly, now we said the prison officers cannot choose the gang leaders. They also can't choose the general fascina. But what they can say is, I won't work with them. Does that make sense? And they do this all the time. As this uh, deputy governor said to me, he said, look, there's only about, he said, there's only one in ten prisoners who, he said, can talk. Does that make sense? And one thing's really important in here is we see the gang leaders as well. They're always the ones these days who are kind of the brightest, the more middle class. Yeah? The ones who you know, would be able to um, deal with these situation. So he says, it'd be quite normal if I say, look, I can't work with that one, I can't work with that one. Um, and then they'll bring other people in, in their place. But what's fascinating about this prison as well is the guards literally never need to go onto the wings. Literally never. Because what they do is it gets to about five o'clock in the afternoon and the fascina will then tell everybody it's time to go to your cells, everyone goes to their cells, and then the guard presses a button and the doors automatically close to the cells. Does that make sense? So again, it's in negotiation with these prisoners. And the last one then is the largest women's prison in Latin America. Actually, I think possibly Brazil's oldest prison as well. It's come up to its 100th anniversary very soon. It used to be a men's prison next door to the old Carangiru prison. It was part of the same complex. I went there in 2008 before I had even started my proper research and I managed to go back there a couple of weeks ago. I had to go back to this place because the stuff that had kind of shocked me then, now I need to read it. And I, and I managed to get the, this governor of this Roman prison to go with me, this um, stock governor there, because yeah, I wanted to ask him if it operated on the same lines. And surprise, surprise, yes it did. Okay, so again, we have this crazy situation. So this is, it's like, it's like a British prison with kind of wings going off and you can go by the gates and you can see everything that's going on inside. So, and like a lot of other Brazilian prisons, you have a double gate system, they call it the cage, and working within the cage are the fascina. Does that make sense? So as the girls told me there, they said, yeah, there's 35 of us on this wing. Okay, and some of us work um, as the, the link, as they call it, because they're the ones who talk to the guards, um, and then others will, when the food comes, will take the food, bring the food back, and so on and so forth. And then, like all of these places, there'll be a few official gang leaders who are kind of hidden away somewhere, and they will control um, the, discipline, the discipline system. Okay, I've got a lot more 
summarise I could do, but I know we don't have time, so I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop there and. Uh...